0: Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 21 in the book of Hebrews titled Eternal Redemption Through the Blood of Christ, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 through 14. I am Joel Harford and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we're continuing to move through chapter 9. We got a lot of the details of the, the tabernacle and the tent in the last section, but we're moving to talk about exclusively about Christ now. Can you give us a little preview of what we're going to see in these verses.
1: Yeah, in some ways, this is the theological high point and the centerpiece of the entire book. Fundamentally, uh, it shows the fulfillment of the animal sacrificial system and the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. By his blood, we uh, obtain eternal redemption. We obtain a right relationship with God. And because of the value, the infinite worth of the blood of Jesus Christ, our consciences can be cleansed From our sins, so that we can be freed up to serve Almighty God. And I can't think of a a more significant message for us today. Even as people are hearing this podcast, they might be driving to work, they might be working out in the yard, or doing some exercise, or just sitting and listening. I don't think there could be any more important message than to know that through faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven that the eternal God who made heaven and earth is at peace with you and you with him. You're in a right relationship with him and your conscience is cleansed from sins and you're able to serve him. What could be better than that? Amen. Well, for the sake of our
0: listeners, I'm going to read verses 11 through 14 of Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent Offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So, verse eleven starts with, "But when Christ appeared, he's contrasting with verse ten about the food, drink, various washings, you know, regulations imposed until the time of reformation." Is what verse ten said. Um, so, how is Christ now contrasted with the old system?
1: Well, there's definitely what the what you know English. Uh professors and teachers and and uh, writing teachers would talk about a compare and contrast. So there are similarities and differences. The similarities were set up by God himself. The old covenant was a type and a shadow of, the, of what he knew was coming later, the perfect work of Christ as our sacrifice and our mediator. And so he set up the old covenant system through Moses. He set up all of the laws. The tabernacle was set up. And so the author has been walking through that through the first 10 verses of this chapter 9. And he's been talking about the tabernacle and its symbolism. And we walked through that in the last podcast and looked at it. But he begins this section with the word but saying now we're getting to something better, uh, the perfection of it. And so we're going to see the superiority of Christ and his sacrifice, the superiority of his ministry as great high priest compared to the Levitical system. So he begins with the word but. Now we're moving in a different direction. We're going to see the fulfillment, the perfection of all of this. Now, what do you get out of the word
0: appeared here? Like he appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come.
1: Yeah, I think it's either talking about his incarnation Or it could be talking about his presentation of his blood in a spiritual sense to the Father on our behalf. So he, somewhat like a lawyer, appears in court. We frequently use that verb, appearing on our behalf. And so I think I probably want to take it more that way, that Jesus appeared in the presence of God, having passed through the, the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is in heaven. So I think it's a heavenly appearing. So he appears on our behalf. He appears as our advocate he appears as our priest as our mediators speak for us he appears before God himself on our behalf so I like that that sense uh, that we could see it in our mind's eye by faith Jesus coming to speak on our behalf before the judge of all the earth
0: right now it says so he appears as a high priest of the good things that have come Mm -hmm. Um, I I could uh, ask you about that but I think we've discussed that significantly in previous podcasts so I'll let our readers go back But then he says, um, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, he entered once for all into the holy places. Mm -hmm. So I want to just ask you about this language. What does it mean that through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered?
1: Well, I think, again, you get the picture of of the tabernacle, that movable tent, and it had a holy place and a most holy place. And so it had curtains. And it had acacia wood poles and stanchions and and fixtures and fittings and all that. And and so it was a tent. And you would would pass through the doorway into the holy place and then pass through another opening into the most holy place or the holy of holies. So there's that sense of kind of moving in or access that you have. Um, But now we're talking about the heavenly realms. And so Jesus went through the heavenly realms. And so the idea here, I think, is that it has to do with where he ends up. He ends up higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. That's Jesus. There is no container for him. There's no uh, place in the created universe that can contain him. And so he passes through the heavens. Even the highest heavens, as Solomon said when he dedicated the temple, cannot contain God. And so Jesus went through all of that, similar to the Levitical priests, the Aaronic priest, going through doorways into the Holy of Holies. Well, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, was just a picture of the the highest place that Jesus could occupy having passed through the heavens to stand before God, Almighty God, on our behalf. So he appeared having passed through the heavens. So it really has to do with his exaltation. He ends up higher than all the heavens, as the scripture says, in order to fill the whole universe. That's Almighty God. That's Jesus appearing on our behalf.
0: Yeah. So then in The second half of verse 10 and verse 12, the text mentions the place where Jesus goes, Mm -hmm. the means by which he goes, and the mission that he accomplishes while he's there. Uh, It says, he enters this greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Mm -hmm. Um, So where does Jesus go to perform this work?
1: Well, it's hard to even visualize it. There's a spiritual dimension, uh, a spiritual world, the heavenly realms that the Bible refers to, and we have indications of that as, uh, for example, the, the heavens were torn open at Jesus' baptism, and the Holy Spirit came out of that rending, um, or you have the idea of the the angelic army that surrounded Elisha and his servant when, when the Gentile forces, I think the Arameans, were there to... Uh, to arrest him or seize him. And he said, there's more for us than there are for them. And he said, open his eyes. So there's the spiritual realm uh, surrounding us. Um, And then you've got the sense of circles, like heaven, even the highest heavens, or the third heaven, that kind of thing. There's circles of heavens. Third heaven, I think, refers to the difference between sky, outer space, and then the heavenly realms. Uh, Stephen, when he was being stoned, he said, look, I see heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So there's this heavenly dimension. And we have to realize that it it is superior to, we could say it predates the tabernacle and its construction. Moses was shown to some degree a vision of it on Mount Sinai. And David also had an image of it when he had the design of the temple, which he passed on to his son Solomon. Both of them were given a vision of the heavenly realms where Jesus operates as our high priest. So it's a spiritual dimension and I think the most important thing is it's before Almighty God. He's offering blood once for all on our behalf before God. So it's it's hard to even talk about a space or a place, but it's it's a a a spiritual realm where Almighty God dwells, and Jesus enters there, this holy place on our behalf.
0: So you talked about the compare and contrast. He's going to compare and contrast Jesus, this great high priest, with the Aaronic priest, and they would enter these earthly courts with the blood of goats and calves and bulls. Right. And then it says, Jesus, it says here, he enters this heavenly court, mm-hmm. not by that means, but by the means of his own blood, mm-hmm. it says thus securing an eternal redemption. So can you explain to us first um, why he had to come with his own blood, being as he's, he's the eternal son of God, and then the mission that he accomplished, this eternal redemption.
1: Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? The author is just is comparing these things that God set up as a type and a shadow, but he's saying the reality is infinitely better than the type or shadow. And he's trying to show the superiority. We've just talked about the superiority of the place in that it's not made by human hands. It's higher than all the heavens, uh, the place. But now we're talking about the blood. And the blood in the Old Covenant was the blood of bulls and goats and sheep and, and animals, animal blood. But the blood of Jesus is infinitely precious. I mean Peter calls it precious in 1st Peter 1 he says you are not redeemed from your empty way of life handed down to you by the blood of animals and all that but with the he calls it the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. You think about the word precious. It's just infinitely valuable. And so Jesus offered his own blood infinitely superior to the blood of bulls and goats or or anything so that our sins might be paid for. And so in this way, again, we're talking the language of superiority. The place of his high priestly ministry is infinitely superior because it's heavenly, not earthly. It's not made by human hands, but it's divinely constructed. And the blood, which is the centerpiece of what he's offering, the sacrificial offering, is infinitely superior because it's the blood of the God-man, of the only begotten Son of God, who took on human flesh and had blood coursing through his veins that he might atone for our sins. And it's infinitely precious, whereas the blood of bulls and goats, we would say, is common.
0: Mm -hmm. So let's talk about this eternal redemption that he earns for us. Um, Just give us a an idea of what this thing that Jesus bought for us with his blood is.
1: Sure, and the, and the word redemption, it's one of a, it's a very important word in the Greek in the New Testament and really throughout, throughout the Bible. The idea of redeeming something is the idea of buying something out of danger uh, or out of an adverse circumstance through the payment of a price. So you could redeem a slave and he would be uh, set free. You could redeem an animal that, you know, the firstborn, all the firstborn belong to God, but you could redeem it by the payment of a price. Uh, The Jews themselves were redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. And so all of this is the picture of of the, the salvation of sinners out of danger, out of being under the wrath of God, out of sin and death by the payment of a price. And the price is the blood of Jesus. And so he has offered for us, the author calls it an eternal redemption, which fits into his language. We're going to see this very plainly, a, a once for all redemption. Never needs to be repeated. Like the blood of bulls and goats had to be endlessly offered, but this is an eternal redemption. So we are forever set free from slavery to Satan's sin and death. And we're set free from being under the wrath of God. We're set free from the law with its regulations which stood opposed to us. And that was nailed to the cross. Jesus fulfilled its condemning power by being our death sacrifice, our substitutionary offering. The blood that he offered was the death that we deserve to pay. In this way, he has become for us our our eternal redemption. That's what the blood of Jesus has won for us.
0: Amen. It seems the author here is um, highlighting the once-for-all nature. I know later in this chapter we're going to say he entered once for all, but this word "secured," securing an eternal redemption, not a down payment for eternal redemption, not a you know a temporary hold. He has secured it. Um, why? Why does he you know here and then I'll stay into the chapter um, focus on the the finality of what he has accomplished.
1: Yeah, nothing more needs to be done by a mediator. Jesus has done everything. You don't need to add anything to it. And this is where I think a strong sense of the sovereignty of God in salvation and a strong sense of the perfection of the work of Christ, our mediator, is important. Uh, We don't need to add anything to Christ's work. It is true that we need to repent and believe, but that was part of what was bought for us. He bought our own repentance. He bought our own faith and he secured the promise that the Holy Spirit would one day apply his work as Redeemer to the elect, that he would most certainly apply his blood and transform the hearts of the people so that they could receive by faith the glory of God in Christ, receive by faith the perfection of Christ's finished work, receive by faith their need for it, that they knew that they were sinners. The Holy Spirit was going to do all of this, but that was part of of what was purchased. All of it was paid for with the price of the blood of Jesus. He bought it all. So he has secured for us the whole package so that when he dies, he can say, it is finished. The elect will most certainly be saved. He will lose none of all that the Father has given him, but he will most certainly raise them up on the last day. And on what basis? On the basis of his finished work on the cross and no other. Nothing needs to be added to it. Right. Now, in verses
0: 4, 13 and 14, he, the author gives this how much more argument. He contrasts the inferior sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats with the superior sacrifice of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I understand his overall argument, but some of the details trip me up. He says, I'll read it for our, our listeners. He says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works mm-hmm. to serve the living God. So I understand the general idea, but what I don't understand is, he says, if, it could, if these blood of bulls and goats could sanctify for the purification of the flesh. I thought this entire time, we've been talking about how they were insufficient.
1: Can you explain that? Well, but they were effective to achieve certain things. Uh, let's, let's set aside for a moment just the, the direct language the authors using here and look at some mediatorial works that were done in the Old Testament um, by lesser persons and everyone's lesser than Jesus. So let's take Abraham, for example. Uh, you remember the time when he lied about his wife, Sarah, and said that she was his sister. Uh, he told the half-truth about that. And um, the king, he was about to take Sarah as his own wife, And the Lord warned him severely in a dream to not touch her. And he said, look, in the innocence of my my heart and the cleanliness of my hands, I've done this. I didn't know. He lied to me. It's like, I know, and that's why I've kept anything from harming you. But now you better return this man's wife to him, or bad things are going to happen to you. So he returned Sarah, and then God had said very plainly, Abraham will pray for the women in your household so that they may bear children. And I will hear him for he is a prophet. So again, this uses the same logic here. If the prayer of a sinful kind of conniving liar like Abraham (laughs) was effective for the opening of the wombs of that Gentile king and the women in his household, and it was, God heard that prayer and it was effective, how much more will the intercession of Jesus be effective for us? So then we go to the actual language that the author is using here. Look, the the actual performance of the old covenant sacrifices did things, it achieved certain things. If you didn't do them, you would be you would be ostracized, you'd be kicked out, or as frequently says in the law of Moses, cut off from Israel. If you didn't if you didn't circumcise your, your children, you'd be cut off. So there are various aspects of these things that are effective. Uh, you don't want to get cut off from Israel, so you better do the sacrifices that are commanded. And so it was uh, that they were effective to sanctify the uh, worshiper in the Old Testament. Another example clearly uh, would be, and we have no indication that anyone disobeyed, but the uh, the night of the Passover, the, the tenth plague. Imagine if some Israelite blew it off and said, look, you know, it's just a symbol anyway. I'm not going to slaughter the, the the lamb. I'm not going to paint its blood with the hyssop plan on the doorposts and lintels, I, I get it, I get it, it's just a symbol. What do you think is going to happen to the firstborn in that house? Well, the Lord was very plain what was going to happen. That child will die. And so it was effective. And so the author is saying, if that was effective, how much more will this be effective?
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it does say what it's effective for. It says to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Can you talk about this part of the Christian life? We've been talking a lot about redemption, about um, how all of our sins are paid for. But now this idea of a clean conscience that we can now serve God. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, it's very important. First, we just have to understand what a conscience is. And a conscience is part of the original equipment in the image of God. We're created with a conscience. Every human being has one. And the conscience is an internal wiring, part of God's natural revelation to every human being which pushes the person to do right and to avoid doing wrong. It pushes him or her to to do the right thing and to avoid doing wrong things. So it's ahead ahead of time and then after the fact, it sits in judgment on the individual and says you did right or you did wrong. And Paul talks about this in Romans 2, saying that pagans have their consciences alternately accusing and defending them. Sometimes the conscience says, hey, that was right. Other times the conscience says, hey, you did wrong. But it's part of the original equipment and God can use it to, to bring people to Christ. The conscience can also be, uh, be seared. Uh, you can just so violate your conscience over and over again that it's just like somebody working in a factory with loud machinery can little by little lose their hearing. And, and the, the, the little fibers in their ears um, get damaged, and they just can't hear certain frequencies. It they, just gets blown out, and they can't hear it anymore. They're deaf. And so it is, or somebody that repeatedly burns their hands, maybe a blacksmith, something like that, they have just no feeling in their hands anymore. Their hands are thick and calloused, and, and they can't feel anything. So people can sin so frequently, they can violate their consciences so much that they just don't feel anything anymore. I heard a story about a doctor that performed abortions, and, and the first time that he did it, he went home and wept and vomited. But after years and years, it was nothing to him. He was joking and talking, telling stories. It just as his heart was hardened. Uh, there's another problem with conscience in that it just tells you to do right and not do wrong, but it doesn't tell you what right and wrong is. And so you could be clicked into a whole pagan system or a false religious system. You could be a Muslim and it, it tells you to, to do the five pillars of Islam. And if you skip a day of prayer, your conscience will say, hey, you, you, you did wrong. You should be praying to Allah. So the conscience can be hijacked by a false religious system. Now, when a Christian comes to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit works in a mysterious way with the conscience to heal it. Paul talks about his own conscience. He says he strives always to keep his conscience clear before God and man. He thinks that's an important thing. Uh, he says that his conscience is clear, but he says, but that doesn't make me innocent. So it's not the ultimate arbiter. So that's what the conscience is. Now, here's the deal. For us as Christians, whenever we sin, we violate our conscience. We feel guilty because we are guilty. And, that, and the same thing happened with Old Testament people as well. They, When David committed that terrible sin with Bathsheba, he felt terrible. He felt horribly guilty. And we have clear indication this probably went on for a year because there was a whole a baby that was born, nine months, and, and maybe a little bit into its life, um, it became sick and died. So we're talking about maybe a year. And the Holy Spirit in Psalm 32 pressed on him day and night to feel guilty for what he did and turn to God in repentance. But he wouldn't do it. He was resisting. He was fighting. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, he said in Psalm 32. Now, in Psalm 51, he says very plainly, if I could offer animals, animal blood, I would do it, but it wouldn't cleanse me. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and contrite spirit, O God, you will not despise. So he knew that the blood of bulls and goats could not cleanse his guilty conscience. But what's so amazing about the new covenant is the blood of Jesus can. The blood of Jesus can stand over your guilty conscience and purify it. It won't lie to you. It won't say, you didn't do that sin. It tells you the truth. You did it. But what it's going to say is the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse you from it. The blood of Jesus is infinitely sufficient to cleanse your guilty conscience. And so you're actually able to be set free and no longer feel guilty for the sins that you committed in the past. And that goes even if it's an hour ago, a minute ago, a week ago. The blood of Jesus is infinitely greater than any sin you've ever committed.
0: Man, that's that's supernatural that someone could by the grace of Christ, actually have a clean conscience after being burdened with sin. That's, that's amazing.
1: Yeah, we think about Peter, how he denied Jesus three times, and that could have just done it. He could have just been paralyzed. I can never say another thing for Jesus. I'm just completely disqualified. But Jesus restored him, made him confess three times that he loved him, you know, giving him a chance to kind of undo the damage he had done, and then set him up in downtown Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost to preach the gospel. And so he never forgot. He wasn't. He didn't have a seared conscience. He had a good memory of what he did, and I think that sting was still there in some way to protect him from cowardice. So the rest of his life, he remembered it, but he didn't have that 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 burden of a of a guilty conscience. This is a big deal. I mean, I think we we think about about that in in popular literature, like uh, Lady Macbeth, who tries to cleanse her her guilt. Her, she feels like the blood is still on her hands for the man that she assassinated. Or again, the Edgar Allan Poe's tale of the telltale heart and how he murders somebody and hides him in his house and the constable comes, a police officer, and, and he can hear the pounding, the beating of the man's heart. Well, the constable's just drinking tea and talking pleasantly with him. He didn't hear anything. But it's all in his own conscience. We can feel so very guilty. And so what we have to do as Christians, this is about as practical as it gets. We're going to sin. I wish we wouldn't. We don't have to sin ever, but we do sin. And when we feel, when we sin, our conscience will accuse us. That's what it's designed to do, especially now that it's been healed. It's going to tell you, you did wrong. And the Holy Spirit's going to join that accusation and say, yes, you did wrong. But the Holy Spirit's going to point you to the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's going to bring in 1 John 1, 9 and say, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And here's the key word, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That includes the conscience. So our conscience can be cleansed. We don't have amnesia. We don't have Alzheimer's or dementia. We remember that we did it. But whenever the accuser, Satan, accuses us, we can answer it saying it's true. But it's also true that Jesus shed his blood and that's infinitely greater than my sins. One one other picture that's been helpful to me, and that is the blood of Jesus being an infinite source of grace is pictured in my mind like an ocean, like imagine the Pacific Ocean, this immense body of water. And your sin could be likened to a fire like uh, um, a match could be, or a stick or torch, or you could imagine a a bonfire that a bunch of people, uh, college students could be around 20 or 30 of them, warming themselves, or even a towering inferno, like a skyscraper completely uh, uh, engulfed in flame. If you put the match, the torch, the bonfire, and the skyscraper in the center of the Pacific Ocean, what's going to happen? It's going to be extinguished, and so it is. And that's a how much more if the Pacific Ocean can do that to the fire? How much more can the infinitely precious blood of Jesus cleanse your guilty conscience, so that, as the text says, you are now free to serve the living God? Amen. That's incredible. Yeah.
0: Okay. There's one thing I skipped over in verse 14 because I wanted to talk about the conscience, and that is um, the eternal spirit. It says mm. that Jesus offered this blood through the eternal spirit. Um, what does this teach us about the holy spirit's role in Christ's redemption
1: let me just tell you the more the more i look at it, i've been studying uh, the holy spirit's role in redemption uh he he takes the blood of jesus and just like that hyssop plant that we talked about where it painted the blood on the on the doorpost and the lintels, so the holy spirit applies the blood of jesus to individual sinners we owe our salvation as much to the holy spirit as we do to jesus So the Holy Spirit is active in ways that we can scarcely imagine. And we just get hints, we don't get like a robust unfolding of everything the Spirit does. I think we're gonna find out in heaven just what the Spirit did in every respect. But it seems almost like Jesus does nothing apart from the will of the Father and seems to do nothing apart from the empowering of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. And so it is through the Holy Spirit that he did everything he did, the miracles, everything. And then it is through the Spirit that he offers his blood on our behalf in the heavenly realms.
0: Yeah. Do you want to say any final words on this section?
1: Well, I just want to say one more thing about the eternal spirit. I love that. Just It's just, we, we generally think of the Holy Spirit just in that one term, Holy Spirit, but he has many names. In the, in the New Testament. And the comforter, the, yeah. um, the helper. Yeah. Helper, yeah. And here, the eternal spirit. That's amazing. It, it gives you a sense of the unchanging nature of the Holy Spirit, and it's pretty powerful. But anyway, the main idea here of this text is the, the superiority and the efficacy, the efficiency, the power of the atoning work of Jesus to cleanse us from guilt, from a guilty conscience, to enable us to serve the living God, infinitely superior, To the blood of bulls and goats and all of the animal sacrifices done in the old testament now they had their place as a type and a shadow and they were somewhat effective in their day but their day is over now and so the author is saying to these jewish professors of faith in christ don't turn back to that old covenant sacrificial system come on now into the new covenant and let's live in it forever and for those of us who are never jews and are not tempted to go back to old covenant judaism What he's saying to us is, do you not realize what a superior covenant that we have, this new covenant, in which we have been, as Gentiles, grafted in and drink in the benefits of it? How beautiful is that?
0: Amen. Well, that was episode 21 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time, and we'll talk about Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22, titled The Mediator of the New Covenant. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you
1: all.